So you're probably wondering why I had them show that video. It's because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> and it just really hit me, you know, we, we, we limit things because we just don't think of, you know, maybe doing it differently. Where it looks like this guy was upset and was talking to the ref or something and got the hike and just started almost like he was marching off five yards. And before they knew it, he was gone. Um, and I ask myself when I think about, you know, where we're at in this series that we kind of start talking about anything's possible, what limits, what limits do you put on God? What limits do you put in your own heart and life in the relationship that you may be in? in the work situation you're in. Maybe you're in your own character. You kind of go, I just got these habits. They just can't. Get. What limits do you put on God? This fall, we've been in a series that we're kind of exploring um, the whole idea of culture, and we've been talking about the fact that culture is one of those things when you go into an organization or a certain place, you, you, you actually feel it. You, you um, experience it. It's almost like a taste and smell kind of thing. It, it's a sensory kind of experience, and not just a bunch of words that are written up on a wall or some people recite. And we have been talking about wanting the kind of people where we take our next step, whatever it is, so we don't walk in the limitations, but we take our next step to move into the things that will help us know, follow, and become like Jesus. That's our mission with a culture, and this culture is around three things. And we've been talking about the first two, the first four weeks and now we're talking about this third part of this culture. So I'm going to ask you to stand for a second. And I want you to say these culture statements with me. And it's really important. If you haven't heard the first four messages, you can kind of go, oh, I don't know. We're, we're talking about something that if you listen to those, I think you'll get a real grasp of what I think Scripture says that you saw in the life of Jesus and you saw in the early church and you see in churches where God is working. And the first one is this. Everyone's welcome. Let's say it together. Everyone's welcome. The second is... Nobody's perfect. And the third is, anything's possible. Turn to someone before you sit down and say, anything's possible. Okay, for the next thank you, you can sit down. You don't have to keep talking beyond that. We already did the kind of welcome and greet thing. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about anything's possible. And I really want us to be thinking about this because the reason, as I put this in, in when I was praying about this and talking uh, in my thoughts before the Lord on this, 1 Corinthians 13 came to my mind. You've heard this passage of Scripture. It's a powerful passage of Scripture. Most weddings you go to talk about this. It's all the love, love, love passage. And it ends after he says all these things are going to pass away, but something's going to remain. It says here in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And we really believe in that kind of environment all kinds of things are possible when there is faith and there is hope and there is love. They seem to be, as Paul says, eternal realities. In fact, it's the very, it's the very air that you breathe in heaven. You think about that. You will live in an environment where you will have faith and hope and love forever. God thrives in an environment where there's faith, hope, and love. Have you thought of that? He loves, as Jesus said, that you would pray that heaven would come to earth. And what does it mean that heaven come to the earth? It's this whole idea 
That where people are welcome and there's this fact that people are not playing games and trying to wear masks and we all admit nobody's perfect. But then we don't go to the other extreme and think, well, you know, that's not a big deal. We also recognize we truly are sinners that need to be saved by the grace of God. So when you get that in, in line, then you begin to understand that a life through faith and hope and love creates the kind of environment that God lives in all the time. What if you had a home that was like that? What if you worked in an environment like that? What if your life, your own personal life, was filled with that? Now, i got to just tell you that I'm not saying that anything you want, you get. That's not what God's saying there. I mean, God is an incredibly good God. You know, he knows that he, he doesn't just give us what we want, but he gives us what we most need. And so when we look at this idea, I want you to ask yourself, what's your anything's possible prayer at this moment? In your heart before God, what's that anything's possible prayer? For some of you, you've been praying it for a long time, and you're still leaning into it. For some of you, it may have been just the last week or so that you began to develop this kind of, God, got to do this. Some of you may have given up. And you've lost hope. And God wants you to know this faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that you would give us wisdom, that you would open our hearts, make them soft and humble, that you would speak more than words through what I say, but you would speak with a revelation and an understanding and with a power that transforms the way that we think. Rearrange, in a sense, the furniture of our mind so that there are places you can dwell and sit and be established. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning I want to talk about two things, basically unity and faith. Because I believe that both unity and faith releases this anything's possible kind of life. It releases what I look at as this anything's possible power of God. So a lot of people, when you do and you speak, they like kind of a roadmap. So I'm going to share with you the two places we're going this morning. And the first is unity and the possibility of the impossible. That's kind of a lot to say, right? The unity and the possibility of the impossible. And then we're going to talk about faith and the impossibility made possible. Okay. So one is making, you know, is possible what's impossible, and the other is impossible made possible. So the first is this unity of the possibility of the impossible. And, and for, for us to understand this, we've been in this, this uh, historical record that Luke, the doctor Luke, writes in Acts. And it's a story of the early church. It's a story of, of Jesus continuing his ministry through the church through the Spirit of God. And, and as you go through it, it's, it's, it's this record of, of God working through these group of followers in these what I call impossible ways. And as you read through it, you'll find how often there's this sense of unity. They're together. They're, they're doing things together. They're praying together. This oneness of spirit. And in fact, Luke writes at one point, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostle. And then a little later, he records in Acts 4 that the church raised their voices together in prayer to God. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
And then catch this prayer. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I, want to ca- I just want you to catch this for a moment. Everything that is done that is good is to point to Jesus. It all happens through his hand. And after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. You ever had a time where you've been praying and all of a sudden the floor starts to shake? I mean, you're probably living in California. But anyway... Um, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And if you read through the first eight chapters, I just, I challenge you to read through the first eight chapters and look at all the statements of unity, oneness, commonness. And then as you read through it, look at all the places where it talks about God was demonstrating his power. This anything possible, God is, is making himself known. And we're going to look at Acts 2, because Acts 2 is the beginning of that, how it initiates. But before we get there, it's very, very important that you understand what was in the mindset of a good Jew at that time, especially a person who was a follower of Jesus and had a Jewish background, because they understood the Old Testament. They didn't experience these things in a vacuum. So like when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, they would remember when Moses was feeding them. And they would remember at another time one of the prophets fed 100. They would, they would have these things in their mind. So when Acts 2 was happening and when they would be reading this, they would have an understanding of a passage of Scripture that I think when I came across this a number of years ago, and I didn't find it in a commentary or anything like this, it just sent to me, ah, the light went on, it makes sense. Because people get all caught up around X2 and there's tongues and they're speaking in this and the outpouring of the Spirit. But if you don't understand this, in Genesis 11, you won't really fully understand Acts 2. So I'm going to ask you to stay with me because I'm going to do some teaching here around Scripture. So are you ready to kind of work with me for a little bit? Give me your attention. Okay. If you look at this, uh, you'll understand, if you listen to Genesis 11, here's what I call how you understand the possibility of impossibility which is happening, and a Jewish follower of Jesus would be well aware of this. And, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. You say, how is this about Acts 2? Well, it, you need to follow with me here. And when I read this, I want you to note this idea of unity, oneness, commonness, sameness. I want you to pay attention to the emphasis on we and us and ourselves, Okay? Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And, and a number of commentators will say this was kind of a new development in that area that, you know, the creativity was beginning to show itself as they were working together. They were beginning to be creative. And, you know, it's just like in our own nation as our nation kind of was developing and, and there was this unity of purpose. It, you know, it, it allows for all this kind of creativity and, and the environment was right for that. So here's what's going on. Then they said, come. Let us build ourselves a city and with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Because that was God's desire. When they went through the flood and they came off that, it was, the whole desire was to spread throughout. The, it was to continue what was happening in Genesis 1 where it said, Be fruitful, multiply, increase, and spread throughout the world. So they say, as you read in verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. I love the Old Testament, this picture, you know, God seems, you know, he comes down and he's looking, he's observing. And the Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So his purposes would continue because God's kingdom, nothing will stand against the will of God, right? But I want you to note verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They come together with a common language. Look at that. A common resolve. They have a common purpose towards a common end. And that is to build this tower. The tower was eventually called the Tower of Babel. It was named that after the event we just read. Literally, the word babble means confusion. And we use it at times when we talk about people, you know, they're just babbled on, right? Kind of nonsensically, just kind of kept babbling on. And that's where this, this word comes from. But the Akkadian root, probably what the tower was named by them was Balel. And Balel meant gate. It was the gate of God, so that the power of God. There was a sense that we were going to build this tower, tap into the power of God, and do what we want. And so they, they are building this thing, and these, 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 these monuments, so to speak, or these gates, these towers, were square, and they had steps, and they went up like this, and you could see them, and they go to the top, and at the top would be a shrine, and at the top of that shrine was this sense of, here was a place where they were connecting to the power of God. It was the gate to, un- to release what God wanted to release. And that was Balal. And, 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 and what I find is they were, they were called ziggurats and they were all, you can find them, you could find them archaeologically throughout Mesopotamia. And here was one they were building. And here was their hope. To unlock the power of God for what? Their selfish purposes. Now, when I think about that, you know, I, I give you a quick kind of illustration of what it's like, what it would look like, because you'd be in these planes, and then you'd also see this tower that would, it would just catch your attention and it would point your eyes to the fact that there's those people here. I, I was one time on a boat in Lake Minnetonka and the sun was setting and I looked over to the east and I saw these incredible golden glowing towers. Anybody ever seen them? Carlson Towers. Our modern day ziggurats. They are established kind of at a western gate. That's what they would do. Kind of a gate to the city or a gate to a region, to a place. And they would be established there so that all would see. I remember one time I was also down south in, in more of the um, Highway 7 area, and it was um, by this high tower road in this other place, and I was looking down, I think it's Williston Road, or some will, there's a road there that goes straight, and it was, the sun was again setting that day, and I looked out, and I mean seriously, golden beaming towers, way down there. And I remember one time when I was visiting someone who um, actually goes to our church who was working there, I went and visited and I saw this little statue. It says, and it says um, it's a statue that says, to the creativity of man. And I go, well, you know, i not make any more comments on that, but that's what they're building. We're incredibly creative and we're going to see more of it released because we are about us. If you look at verse 6, though, I think this is really interesting because this was a verse that grabbed my heart. And it was one of those kind of things. A number of years ago, it just wouldn't let it go. I read this and I said, can this be true? I went and I looked at some of the uh, Hebrew in it and I looked at some of the, the other ancient, you know, the languages that would f- support it and stuff. And, and it's just what it says. Verse 6, the Lord said, if as one people, 
speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Look at those words. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Think about it. One people, one language, one resolve, one self-glorifying evil end. And God says this. There's the possibility of the impossible. Because people are unified. And we think about it, you can see this happen all the time. You can see when a business gets really unified around something and it doesn't matter how it happens, whether there's a leader that does it and they get common resolve and they all are kind of speaking their common business language. Isn't it amazing what those businesses can do? They can do impossible things. Or a sports team gets together. A team that loses all the time, for instance, all of a sudden a team that gets together and they start playing above their heads. They get all kinds of young people on them. Their name is called the Chicago Cubs. Three rookies on that team. I could go on, but that's not what the message is about. But they're doing an impossible. Yeah, just think about it. Just think if you were a family. Just think if your family came together and there was just a sense of this resolve and you were together around it, there's amazing things that can happen. In fact, nations, if they come together around a common language and a common purpose towards a common end, even if it's against God, can do incredible things. Anybody think of a nation like that once? Think of Germany, Nazi Germany. Think of the incredible power unleashed. And it doesn't have to be around a loving relationship. You can be put together in a oneness of common energy, even in, a, in, in, in an environment of fear, North Korea. It's amazing the things that can happen through unity. And what I find is really interesting, because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, he always has the upper hand on our self-centered plans. He always knows how to intervene. He knows how to put an end to what ultimately stands against him. Because no one will plan will ever stand against God. No plan of any man or woman will stand against God. Your self-will will ultimately fall. So what does God do? If you look at verses 7 through 9. He says, come, let us go down. Well, now you might go, well, what is the us? Well, there's lots of different you know, theories or, or, or ways commentators look at that. But one of them that is pretty common is the fact that we're talking about the Trinity here even in the Old Testament. There's this kind of royal we they talk about that kings within those days talk about. But there is a real sense where it's kind of the royal we, but it doesn't mean it's not also talking about the, the Trinity because you see the Spirit of God from Genesis. You see the angel of the Lord, which is often the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. And you see them coming together. And it is this Trinity, this community of unity that sees all that's going on. They come down and they go, hmm, this looks like, boy, if we don't do something here, we better intervene. In fact, so as you read it, it says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them, and from there over all the earth they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So let me just show you a map quickly. It gives you an idea of what that looks like. And we're not really sure where in Mesopotamia this would be, but it's somewhere probably around the Tigris, Euphrates River. And what happened was, here's the table of nations. Here is the scattering that takes place from that area. They're confused, and they scatter throughout that whole region. And I want you to keep that in your mind, because we'll look at this in a, in a few minutes. 
So here you see them scattered out. And God has this, you know, when you think about it, he, he, he knows how to do his work, how to keep things from going the direction he wants. So one of the oldest tricks in the book, Satan actually learned this from God. God brings confusion and division, which leads to scattering. And God will actually, think about this, confuse and divide and scatter in order to accomplish his purposes. There are times that he does that. You can see it throughout the Old Testament. He brings a guy, Gideon, he has a whole army together. And what he does, he says, you know what? We're going to continue to kind of divide this out till we get to something pure because we need something pure. We need this kind of faith. We need this kind of, of, of unity of heart and oneness so that it can release the power of God. And he, he was not just demonstrating the fact that I, I don't want you guys to go out in mass and then take credit for it, but he's also demonstrating what you see throughout Scripture. Jesus himself comes. He says, I come with the sword. Why? He was going to divide in order to scatter out in a sense that those who would be pure, who would follow after God and say, God, we will with all our heart seek after you. So here's the really cool part. God had always planned. You think of what happened at the Tower of Babel and his statement. He had always planned to reverse the curse. That has always been in his heart. His heart has always been to reverse the curse because he knows that there is in unity this incredible possibility of what's impossible. And so with this desire to accomplish his will, he takes a person, and you can see it even in yourself. Just think about it for a second. If you have a, 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 a united mind that's not divided, if you have, you know, like it says, don't be double-minded, but it has one single mind, it's amazing what God can do. When you are wholeheartedly given over to him, God can release amazing things. There was a man who walked in this earth. His name was Jesus. He was both God and man, and he was so fully united with his Father and so united with the Holy Spirit of God, he brought a bunch of ragtag disciples around him and helped unite them. And when he did that, he did what? Incredible, impossible things. He died on a cross so that you and I can actually have a relationship with him. There is a sense when people wholeheartedly, with all their being, come before him and say, God, I am going to follow you. He does these kind of incredible, impossible releases to his power. And so you see this and you think about that. And here is God our Father and Jesus our Savior, well aware of the power that's released when his, his followers, the church, come together in unity. There is the possibility of the impossible. So look at Acts 2 now in light of Genesis 11. Okay, you've kind of followed with me here. It's the backdrop that the Jewish believer who was going through this understood. When the day of Pentecost came, and and you almost need to underline this next line, they were all together in one place. That's not just a kind of like they were in the same room. There was this sense that their hearts, their souls, their desires, their resolve was all about the kingdom of God. They were meeting together saying, God, we desire, we long for it, we want you, we're praying for you. Jesus said, I want you to wait together, I want you to stay together. I want you to recognize, Luke 24, Luke tells us this. He says that, I want you to wait till power comes from on high. In Acts one, Luke continues the story. At one point, they say, God, we want to bring your kingdom. And when is it going to come? And Jesus says to him, I want you to wait and stay in the city till that power is released. I want you in unity, in a spirit of prayer, to be together. So suddenly, it says in verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
You see, the, you see what's going on here? Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. You can use the word confusion. What's going on? You see the parallels? Because each one had heard their own language being spoken and utterly amazed in a sense of awe. They asked, aren't these all a bunch of Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then he lists the whole group of Parthians, Medes, etc. goes on, visitors of Rome, um, Cretans, Arabs. And then you see in the end of verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and yet perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? And what it means simply is this. That when unity is found together through the Spirit of God, God begins to release himself in many different ways. So it says, some, however, made fun of them, and they said they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. So what you see here is the reverse of the curse God had issued at the Tower of Babylon. And now again, take a look at this map, because we just showed you all the different places people came from. Here's what happens. You think this is a mistake? These people from all these same places that were scattered, this is what was in the head, they knew this, scattered from all these different places, are all together in one place. And what happens in that one place? In that one place, by the Spirit of God, there comes a common language. Out of that common language, there's a spirit and a heart that desires to do things for God. And they come together, and God releases his power and God does miraculous things now think about this if one people with one language with one holy unholy with one unholy resolve toward a self-glorifying end come together and God has to stop them because the impossible they would accomplish Imagine this. I just want you to imagine. What would God accomplish if one people with one voice got together to do what God wants done? I want you to imagine what God would accomplish if one people with one voice got together to do what God wants done. I'm guessing the word of God would spread from a small little upper room experience with 120 frightened disciples, they would become emboldened and they would become empowered and they would begin to step out and they would step out and they would begin to talk about Jesus. They'd begin to see Jesus flexing his muscle for them through their unity. And as they did that, there would be thousands that would come to know him in Jerusalem. And as it began to happen in Jerusalem where thousands started to come together, it would spill into this place called Judea. And as it spilled into this place called Judea, eventually you know what happens eventually is people kind of go, this is really cool, I love this, and they stay their own little club, and then sometimes God in Acts 8 comes and says, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I, the purpose was to get you to go to the ends of the earth, so I'm going to go ahead and a little persecution get you out there. So then it begins to spread to Samaria. Samaria were a bunch of people, they were half-brothers and sisters who they didn't, couldn't stand. They were the ones that were worshiping wrong, and all of a sudden God begins to, to move himself into that place, and from that place he goes to the nations, the pagan nations of the world. And he starts to reach out to all these different places. He reaches out to these, what they call Gentiles. In fact, they called them dogs. You know why they call them dogs? Okay, let me ask you, how many of you have dogs that actually pray before they eat? I mean, if you throw a piece of meat down, what do they do? How many of your dogs just 
bow down. My dog does. I've trained my dog to do that. I honestly, I stop and we pray together. And you know the reason why they called them dogs? Because dogs were, in a sense, senseless. They had no sense of God. They just were, they were led by their appetites. And so they looked at these nations around the world and they didn't have any desire for them to be saved. And God brings this idea. He says, everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything's possible. And I will, from Samaria, begin to go to the nations. Those you think are senseless. I have no sense for God. And I'm going to reach them to the ends of the earth. Just imagine if a group of people together said, Jesus, send your Holy Spirit with power upon us to do whatever you want us to do. And we will put our self-centered, selfish desires our personal towers aside in order for you to begin to build whatever you want to do in and through us. Do you think anything is possible in that kind of scenario could take place? So this past Monday, it's really kind of interesting. We're at a worship um, service brainstorming meeting where we're thinking about things um, through November and, and through the Christmas series and stuff and and, and Lindsay Deline, you know, Lindsay Deline Larson now, um, oh, there you are, Lindsay, came to our service and she, she, she said, did you know that in our culture statements of everyone is welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible, that the, there's a message embedded in it? I said, not really. And she goes, yeah, there, there really is. I, I looked at the, at the message you see on the board and, and she showed me and she said, one body is possible. You know what, I, that should be, that was a special significance to me because what is the one thing that sometimes in churches, in our church, we've had experiences, how, is it even pot? You know what, God, I believe, says it is possible. Anything's possible. One body is possible because of the Holy Spirit when people in, 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 in faith and trust put aside their own self-centered desires and say, God, what do you want us to do individually, wholeheartedly? I give myself to you. Can you imagine what God can do in and through you when you wholeheartedly give yourself to him? Now, again, I'm not saying it's kind of like, you know, it's not the kid with the parent at the candy, you know. Why do they put those candy things right as you go through the aisle, right? And they put them there. It's not like the kid who wants like 800 candy bars. And you as a parent, you know, even parents, think about it for a second. Parents will sometimes not do good to their children. They'll actually withhold good, right? They'll give them a timeout. They'll maybe say, you can't play with this doll right now. The purpose is to do what? It's not that they, at that moment they don't have good to us, but it's because God is doing something good in us. There are, when it comes to this idea of anything's possible, God is saying wholeheartedly, you give yourself to me. And guess what? I will begin to do things in you. I will begin to develop the character of Christ. I will begin you to, to allow you to trust and to believe and to begin to have a hope. And I will begin to pour into your heart a love that begins to spill out. And it is that kind of thing when he begins to develop our character that actually changes the circumstances around us. Because most of us, are controlled by the circumstances that we want good to us. And God sometimes says the most anything possible thing that's going to happen is the very thing that needs to happen in your heart, and it's the good in you that God wants to do. And so you see this picture here, and you see this picture of them together where you see the unity that comes to the Spirit of God creating the fact that this possibility 
to do the impossible is there. So what I want to share with you with the moments we have is unity in the spirit plus faith in Jesus equals anything's possible. It's not just unity, but it's a faith, it's a trust, it's a submission, it's, it's putting our whole selves individually, but also as a corporate group, together under the Spirit of God. And faith and the impossibility is made possible through that simple trust. To a guy who came to Jesus one time and he shared to Jesus, he said, you know, Jesus, it's got this impossible situation. My son keeps, a spirit comes out of me, throws himself in the fire. It's just incredibly impossible. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything with a question mark, he says, would you have pity on us? Would you, would you help us? And Jesus looks at him and I think with a surprise looks and says, if you can, are you kidding me? And he didn't do the are you kidding me. I kind of added that. But that's what his look looked like. If you can Now, catch what he says here. When you wholeheartedly, when we in unity come, it creates the possibility that's impossible. And then he says, here's what makes the possible, this impossible possible. It's the faith. It's the trust. Because he looks at him and he says, everything's possible for him who believes. Catch that for a second. In faith, in simple trust, it unlocks the ability for God to work. And to do what he desires. And part of the problem is we are often so controlled, again, by our circumstances and the way we want things to do. And sometimes God allows those circumstances. Because, you know, everybody, everybody you know, right, at work, where, whether they can be a believer or not, everyone goes through rotten things at times, right? It's a matter of how you go through them. It's a matter of whether you are trying to control and if you can get, you know, if I can just get the circumstances better or is it more the idea that you begin to start saying, God, in these circumstances, I trust your character. I trust that you love me. I trust that you have something for me. I trust that through this, you may be doing something in me. I trust that through this, you can begin to pour out into me the wisdom and understanding that can, as a result of what you're doing, bring about a different change in my environment. Because everything's possible in him who what? Simply trust and believes. So faith, what does it look like? So let's get really just practical for a minute. What does faith on a day-to-day basis look like? And the first thing I said, the kind of faith that has a wholehearted experience before God or a unified experience as a body is courageous. Faith that, that, that stands in the face of of fear, and, when, and when, when you are in the midst of that fear and you're afraid to step out, it's the faith that says, God, I'm going to trust you anyway. It's the kind of faith that, faith that in, in, the, in, in, in the midst of fear, you feel the fear and you do what God's calling you to do anyway. It's courageous. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see again and again, you, you see courage and boldness. It's the idea that when God is at work, I'm going to take the step. I'm going to follow that step. And when you take the step, God comes in behind that step to work on your behalf. Three times Peter is standing at this fire. Jesus is on trial. This little wimpy servant girl says, I think I saw you with Jesus. Three times, he actually, and the New Testament doesn't do a good job, it says he actually, I think he cussed. No way! Blank, blank, blank. I didn't, no way! So then, here's this wimpy Peter, who's afraid of this little servant girl, who three times denies Jesus, even knowing him. All of a sudden, you come to Acts 2, you read this whole thing, in verse 14, it says, Peter stands up, raises his voice to thousands, all these people, and he speaks out boldly. Do you think he was a little bit afraid? 
I think he probably had a step through his fear in that. Because the old tapes play in his head the same way they play in yours. You can't do that. You're going to fail. You're going to make a fool of yourself. You're going to do that. But all of a sudden, God goes, no, no, no. No, 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 no. I just want you to step. You step and watch what I do. Be courageous. Be bold. Oh, I can't talk to this person. This person's going to shut me down. They're going to make me feel like a fool. No, no, no. I just want you to do that. You know, it's really interesting in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because of the stories. You get this picture of of Moses, and he's taking the children of Israel, and and he's leading them out of captivity. He's he's pulling them out of their bondage. And he takes them, and he goes by the shortcut, the quick way to the promised land, and he goes to, and you wonder why he's driving this, who let him drive the car, because all of a sudden they're all right before the, the sea. And they look back, and here's a whole army behind him, and, and they're trying, like, give me a break, Moses. Why did you do it? What are you doing? And then God goes, stand back and raise up your, you know, your staff, because I'm going to show them how powerful I am. And what does he do? He, he raises his staff, and the, and the waters, you know, you've all seen the movie, right? The waters part. They all walk through it. That's really cool. But then they go through the desert where God is training their character and they're strengthening their character like he might be doing in your heart right now. And he's beginning to teach you how to walk by faith. He's asking you to take a step of faith. They come to the, to the promised land and there's a big river and we're told in, in Joshua that it's, it's flowing, it's raging, it's at flood time, you know, the kind of the, what you'd see down in Columbia, flooding river. It's just raging down. And he says to them, you know, we're all waiting for, you know, just raise your staff, Joshua. Just raise your staff and the water parts. You know what he says to them? He says, I want you to take the leaders, those of you who have probably more faith than the others, and I want you to get ankle deep in the water. No, you don't want us to do that. No, I want you to get ankle deep in the water. When you take the step of faith, I will empower it and I will part it. And that's what he does. And some of you are in a position right now and God has been saying, I want you to take this step. And you're saying, well, part it. Come on, just raise the staff. And he's saying, no, I've done that before in your life. Now it's time to stretch a muscle of faith. Be courageous. And another part of it, faith is, is it's not only courageous, it's calm. There's a sense that in the midst of the storm, when, when you feel like you just want, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, how many of you kind of go, oh, God, where are you? Anybody ever done that? Oh, man, and then you run around for the next three, four days, and the people at work are kind of going, well, I thought you were a believer. I thought you believed that God had your life, and, da, 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 and you're just all upset, right? Satan wants you to live that way. He loves it when you get out of a place of peace. He hates it when you stay calm and you just say in your heart, you know what, God's in control. You know, all of us want to believe that someone's in control. You know, when we are in a situation where we don't have control, we want to make sure someone else has the competency and they're in control, right? Some of you have flown on a plane before, and if you have, there's from time to time, you'll, you'll have a pilot who might stay over the intercom. He'll kind of say... You know, I'm so grateful that you're flying with us today. Here's this. And he gives you a bunch of facts. And then at the end, he goes, you know, just want to share with you. I'm, I'm so excited about this. Is, um, I've been flying for 30 years for this airline. And I'm, this is my last flight before I retire. And, and all of a sudden, everyone claps, you know, and they're all thrilled, right? Because, you know, this guy's got experience and he's competent and he's done it all these years. Now, can you imagine a guy getting on the, the, over the intercom saying, I'm your pilot today and gives you all the facts. And then he goes, I'm so excited. This is the first flight I've ever flown. Because we all want to know that there's a pilot who really is incompetent and has control of our life. And 
And yet, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I can tell you, that when start, the circumstances start going out of control. I start losing the character of the God who loves me, and I kind of go, who's the pilot? And God's going, I, I told you all along, I'm the pilot. And right now, God is calling you. He's speaking to your heart. He's saying, peace, be still. Trust me. Don't give way, don't cave in, don't get overwhelmed by whatever you think you can't control in your life. The reality is God's in control. He is the pilot. He's done it many, many years. This is not, you're, you're not his first flight. And there's this courage that says, you step out and now you'll see my power come through that. And it's this calm that says, God, I trust you. And then there's another part of it. There's a confidence in faith. So there's a calm that keeps you calm in it, but there's a confidence. And when I say confidence, the confidence is not in what's going on around you. So often what happens in my life, and I'll, I'll just tell you over the years, and God has been working on this in my life, I can come to a place where I just despair and ah, things are rotten, it feels hopeless. And, and who's my confidence in? I remember one time in my life where I was really praying for an outcome from God and really trusting him. And it was in one of these anything's possible prayers. And, and, uh, and it didn't happen. And I was just so shaken. And um, I felt such despair. I, I, I remember getting in my car. And I, honestly, I had these kind of thoughts like, I'm just done with it. I'm ready. And something felt so core in me that was just being shaken apart and I, I actually called my wife my wife was here in first service and I called her and I, I said you know Grace and she said would you go see this therapist friend and I did and, and it was really wonderful I did God worked gave him some words to it to help me but here was what was going on God was allowing these kind of things to happen in front of this and anything's possible prayer was not being accomplished and what was being accomplished was something in me that I know now. He was saying, Kevin, for the things that you desire, for the things that you want in your life, unless I deal with this at the core, at its root, unless I break it apart, unless I pull it out by its roots, what you long for will never happen. And it was at that moment that God began. It was a process. It took three, four months. It was, but it was this process in that moment, I began to understand what it meant to put my confidence in God no matter what the outcome. So there's courage, and I, you learn to step out, and there's this calm, you stay in a place of peace, because Satan hates the peaceful heart. Because if he can get you riled up, you'll miss the opportunities for his anything's possibility to come through you and to touch anybody else's life. And then you begin to start realizing it's not about what I want as an outcome. I, I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They've got this big, uh, this big idol they're supposed to bow to. Nebuchadnezzar wants them to, and they stand before him. And he says, you know what? Anybody who does not bow before this idol is going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. That's, that's the prize for not bowing. So everyone else, you know, it's like North Korea. Everyone else is, hey, you're the best, Nebuchadnezzar. But these three guys say, no way. They sent away, and so they look at him and say, Nebuchadnezzar, you know what? We don't need to defend ourselves, but here's what you need to know, that our God can save us. Our God can save us. He will rescue us. And then they add this incredible line, and even if he doesn't, even if what we think we want for an outcome doesn't happen, our confidence is still in him. And here's the last thing, and I'll close on this, this idea that it's only confident in where it's placed. But faith, simple trust, is this kind of trust 
that is compassionate. I think the reason God allows for these anything possible kind of power to flow through us is because he's not trying to dazzle us. It's not about our personal experience. It's about the fact that he wants to touch and to reach other people. He wants to love them. He wants to demonstrate his compassion for their situation. So at one point, Jesus, this is really interesting, Luke tells us that Jesus approached the town gate and there was a dead person that was being carried out. So there's a funeral procession and only one the only son of his mother was there, and she was a widow, and the large crowd was going through. And then when the Lord saw her and sees this funeral pyre, which is, this only son is on, it says the Lord saw her, and his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. But you kind of go, what? Don't cry? What do you mean? His heart is filled with compassion. Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, which you just don't touch dead bodies in that culture, and they were, that they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, and they were filled with awe and praise God. They said, There's a great prophet among us, but catch this. They said this, God has come to help his people. I got to tell you, the kind of things that God moves through us in faith to do are things of compassion. That compassion is for other people that God is placing around you, that he wants to use your faith to touch their lives. So that people go, guess what? God cares about me. When God is moving your heart through compassion for another, I just encourage you, step out in faith courageously, calmly, and confidently, and express the compassion of God that's in your heart. Last April... I got an email from someone who attends our church who it began by saying this, Kevin, I'd love to share with you a miracle story. And uh, she shared with me, it was about a 12-year-old boy that she had the opportunity to get to know and he's been working with. And um, He doesn't attend our church, so I have permission to share the story. She wrote that this 12-year-old boy was severely abused from ages 2 to 8 and recently had begun feeling suicidal. And as she writes, she says, he struggles with believing that God exists and often seeks to convince others that God is not real. Which is, you know, it's a pretty common thing. If God isn't, you know, misery loves company. And she writes, in conversations with him, oh, this is what the 12-year-old concluded to. If, If there is no God, why live? You want to know the mindset of people who do carry those guns and do all that? I mean, there's this, this... just, if there's no God, why live? This is, this is a little kid who could probably have grown up and done something like this. She wrote, she wrote me, In conversations with him, he has on numerous occasions assured me that one day he will be successful in his effort to commit suicide. Not sure what to do. So she's confused and praying about it. And steps out in faith. She says, I referred the boy to our church's middle school pastor, um, Bruce Jugsma, so that he might talk to him. So Bruce talked to him about belief and doubts and stuff and and, and she was hoping maybe he'd get some spiritual help from Bruce. Last week, this is what she writes, Jesus appeared to this boy, this is back in April, in a dream. And the boy recognized Jesus who said to him, I did what I did a long time ago so that you could live a better life. And she finished her email to me, what a miracle. 
Well, I had filed that story away. I had thought maybe I'll use it at some point. When I was doing this message, I thought, wow, oh yeah, compassion and faith. There was a lady who was just praying for someone, had compassion for him, and, and courageously stepped out and had Bruce get involved. So I thought, I'll just check to see how this kid's doing because I'd hate to talk about it and all of a sudden something really bad's happened. So I, I, I wrote her an email and just said, how, how, how's things going? And, and she wrote back, yes, I'm still seeing him. He's doing really well. The church very generously paid for, for him and his two siblings to attend a week at Camp Shamanaw this summer. See, the mom's been in an abusive relationship and the guy left recently and she returned to work and through the summer the kids were sitting at home and idle. The camp experience was the highlight of their summer. And I thought to myself, here is a woman who said, God, I don't know what to do. And God kind of led her in a step of faith. And she met with Bruce and had that happen. And then you as a church generously give money to our caring fund and things like that, which generously helps people, a young little 12-year-old boy who had a dream, a vision. People say, signs and wonders aren't happening. That's, that's a sign. God's at work. And he's using you. And the more we grow united and say, God, it's not about my personal agenda. It's not about my own ambition. It's not about what I want. When I'm I'm done building towers, I'm done trying to get people to build towers with me. But if we, just think, if we as a whole people looked to God with one voice, with one heart, our eyes on him and said, God, do what you want to do here. Don't you think God would get behind that? I, didn't, I just didn't know how to finish this. I just, here's the conclusion. Let's do it. 